You've stopped in at the guidepost. Brought to you by the American Saltwater Guides Association. Stock up on gear, grab a coffee at the counter, and get ready to hear incredible fish stories from the best captains on the East Coast and thought-provoking conversations with stakeholders and policymakers working to protect these fisheries. This podcast is presented by Costa Sunglasses. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Guidepost. Uh, Will Poston here, um, and we have a tuna guest today. Uh, we figured with the fall run heating up and half beaks getting getting active and that topwater bluefin bite out east, um, hopefully uh, coming together here. Um, what better time to talk about bluefin tuna management, um, some awesome science uh, efforts that um, – the Bluefin Collaborative is engaged on. Um, so we have Chris Weiner, uh, Executive Director of the Bluefin Collaborative here um, to talk all things Bluefin Tuna. Chris, how you doing, buddy? Hey, good. How are you? It's uh... We're doing well. We're doing well. Uh, got, a, got a stiff east blow coming here on Cape Cod, which... Uh, should uh should put a little pause in um an otherwise great albie season so far but i'm sure they'll stick around uh how about how about you man you still finding some some fish up there well you've had uh you've had some good weather recently we we uh sounds like you had a good trip doing acoustics this past weekend which acoustics is obviously really cool but yeah, I was supposed to actually be in Nova Scotia already. I, I had it all planned out, but if you've been watching the weather models the last few year, uh, few days, which I do obsessively, uh, there was there's it still could happen theoretically. But there was it was like a tropical storm in North Carolina, and then the next unnamed storm was predicted to rocket up that central high, you know, the high, and it's, I, I don't know what you call it. Maybe it's a Greenland high. But if you were watching the weather maps in in last night's run or yesterday afternoon's run and in the run before that, the day before that, the day before that, it showed a big storm coming right back into the Gulf of Maine. As you know, we just had one come by that didn't hit as hard as it was supposed to, but was close enough to scare the heck out of everybody. And so yeah, I know you were busy. I know you were busy last week pulling boats left and right. So I'm Yeah, well we harpoon, so you know, you know, I'm how I got into bluefin, I might as well jump in. It's we yeah. I'm a, we we harpoon exclusively out of Perkins Cove, Maine. Uh, we have a 38-foot Holland. You know, it's got a 30-foot tower, a 25-foot pulpit. And uh, it, Perkins Cove is, you know, as, as far as I've been told, you know, the reason it's a little hot spot for harpooning is obviously there's tuna in the past nearby, but I think the whole Maine coast could say that, um, or the whole New England coast. Um, in the old days, it was very close by. They would catch um, quite a few fish right off, right off Perkins Cove. But it kind of started... There's a family, our family is down in mid-coast Maine, which uh, to us is, you know, the, you know, well east of Portland, but not down east. So down east to a lot of people, you think just east, any, any, anywhere east of Portland, but the mid-coast area, especially places like Small Point, uh, Bailey Island, you know, it's, it's uh, not far outside of Portland, but it's, it's a whole different world. And there was a family or two there. That family uh, spread a little bit down to Perkins Cove. They brought harpooning with them. And, you know, now we have probably, I think, six or seven harpoon boats in our little cove, which is tiny. It's it's a bunch of lobstermen, a few harpooners that do both, some exclusive harpooners, and then, you know, a handful of center consoles and sailboats. But it's it's a it's a very small working waterfront. 
but it's a very popular tourist destination and we, we have a lot of tuna. And so I got into this all because I started, uh, I'm, like I was saying the other day or earlier today, I don't, I'm losing track, um, <laughs> getting old, but I was going to say, uh, I used to be able to go to meetings and be the only one in the twenties and then thirties. And now I'm over 40. So I guess I'm old. But yeah, but you're still you're still relatively the minority in the the age yeah. uh, structure of the, many of these meetings. Yeah, like I was saying, like the next one up is Dewey Hamelwright, who is in the fifth, young fifties. But he's again not old. I don't. He's not old, but it's like it looks like old. You know, when you're fifteen, you think fifty and forty year old. So I guess I'm older. But you know, I I went right out of college and tech uh, got. Well, my dad started East Coast Tuna with a handful of others, um, it, which was I think in the eighties. That was a industry group that uh, there was a lot of things that were being faced uh, uh, regulatorily um, and there was no organization whatsoever. And so back then it was uh, there was a bigger purse fishery for bluefin and there was, uh, you know, a burgeoning commercial fishery that was on the days when it was leading up to the, the peak where, you know, you're catching fish seventy five dollars a pound before the Europeans really started to go at it hard. Um, there was a need for a group. East Coast Tuna Association started. I was with my dad all the time. I guess I just uh, either born with what he has or took it on. Uh, nature, nurture, you know how it goes. Uh, either way, I've been going to meetings since I was like 10, but uh, really got into it uh, right outside of college, which... Uh, and and Chris, you, you, you know, when you say meetings, you've been you know, you're, you've done HMS stuff. Yeah, the first virtual, of... So the first meeting I went to was um, actually, which I know we might get into a little later was uh, in 2005, I went, started going to all the herring meetings and we had for a few years before that, which we can talk about later, um, a lot of gear conflict, uh, user conflict, however you want to call it, tuna come here to eat herring and the midwater pair trawlers wiped it out. And so that that was my first like real experience in the management world beyond just attending meetings. But ever since, you know, I've been on the HMSAP. Uh, I'm current still on the ICAT advisory committee. I, I've been going to science delegation meetings for the U.S. Um, and management meetings for ICAT, uh, and also heavily involved herring, mackerel. Um, state, federal, you know, the whole shebang. And then on top of that, obviously now um, you're, you're dealing a lot with wind and other um, other bigger picture things like that. So I'm on a, a research consortium in Maine. I was on the wind advisory board. So I've tried to cut back a little bit because starting a nonprofit is so hard. But, you know, like you, I have... Chris, let's put a pin, let's put a pin in the complexities of uh, international highly migratory species management and uh, tell us a little bit about Bluefin Collaborative and why you guys started it. You know, I know, um, you know, and talking with you a bunch, you know, we both of our organizations share, you know, the kind of the belief that you have to manage these fisheries according to the best available science. And if the science isn't there, you know, you got to step up to the plate and do the science. And that that's how, you know, more or less we got introduced by uh by both of our uh, friends, uh, Colin Lundholm of Cape Star Charters. He was like, you guys, you guys have to talk. Yeah, he was a Cape star. Um, yeah, you know, Colin's a great guy, and if he's indicative of of your group, it's it's a you've got a good base. But you know, it's you know, obviously, uh, you know, in terms of um, the science part of it, it's I've been going to meetings for a long time, and our observations, whether good or bad, um, one way or another, often do not match 
what we see happening at the science level. And there's been a long, long history of confrontation, I would call it, or tension between the fishing industry and in our case, the Southeast Fishery Science Center, which oversees bluefin. And, you know, I think when we started, the, you know, the kind of what this blossomed out of was, you know, I heard enough times that, it, you know, where's the science? Where's the science? Because it's easy to complain. Um, you know, science is hard. It's, it's you know, and, and John Walter, Matt Loretta, these people, uh, Clay Porch, whoever sees it, the, the many other good people uh, at the Southeast Center um, don't have enough money, don't have enough time. I mean, I sat next to John Walter at a meeting and I would tell him this to his face. I, I don't know how he does so much in a day. He was handling five different things at once and didn't bat an eyelash. And so, you know, he's dealing with multiple councils and so on and so forth. And so, you know, it's easy to criticize the science. And so I think that the dynamic was always you have fishermen complaining um, because it doesn't match. And, you know, on the other side of it, you have scientists with not enough money, not and not enough data, mostly. And so yeah. um, I think where this all came out of was frustration with, you know, the advocacy um, effort, which which is usually that what fishery, you know, that is how fishery, you know, both East Coast tuna. And then I was briefly, we helped start and then briefly a part of the American Bluefin Tuna Association. You know, those are organizations which you need those types of organizations in, in any fishery that are advocacy organizations. But, you know, it's often just uh, hitting your head against the wall, it feels like. And so we decided it's, a, it's of, a slow roll. I, I have learned that. In my... and it's, it, it leads to confrontation because, yeah. you know, so we said um, so myself and one of our board members and a few others for five or six years, we're talking about, you know, why, why not start a science group? And so in, 2020, um, the bluefin tuna assessment uh, came out and, and showed, you know, and really showed science uh, numbers that, that you know, I think there was like 3,000 or something, 60 inches believed to exist in the Western Atlantic. And conservatively, there was hundreds of thousands around us. And, and I know people shock, shocked when I say that number, but um, there was a plane there that measured that that same day before a bunch that was nine miles across and, and you know, how, who, who knows how deep of 65 to 75 inches. So, you know, there was such a stark contrast that we decided, you know, now is the time. Let's start a group. And, uh, you know, the goal being to bring fishermen's expertise into the data gathering process, work collaboratively with anyone that wants to do this type of science with an emphasis on neutral, objective science. And um, so we believe that fishermen are key to any management in science because, for example, we're doing a DNA project and that project where you've got fishermen collecting more data than anyone could for free because it, they, they care about their fishery and they're doing it well. And I know you're a part of that too. So, you know, the, the dual prongs of the Bluefin Collaborative are A, bringing data into the system um, for the science community and, and then also raising money through alternate means because the other problem with fishery science is a lack of money and often people go for the same grants this, which are underfunded and or 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 other means that aren't always objective and so you know our goal is to bring in data and to raise money to fund objective science to help answer the the really i think uh outstanding and unresolved questions regarding bluefin tuna yeah so i mean chris you you definitely hit on some some nails that you know more that we deal with more in like the inshore and like council fisheries right yeah. there 
people don't understand just how difficult it is to count fish. Yeah. They, 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 they think of, they think of like, you know, Almost. deer and elk and, and waterfowl yeah. and yeah. how easy it is and how yeah. easy those things are to manage. Um, but fish swim and we don't really know a whole lot about the ocean. So, you know, yeah. it's really refreshing every time you and I chat to, you know, hear the approach that you guys are taking. Well, um, you know, it's, and- uh, last year they, so the, you probably know, they just finished up a management strategy evaluation for bluefin tuna. And I was lucky slash unlucky enough, to, joking. I mean, the science, it, the problem with these, a lot of the meetings is it's in the beauty of hybrid meetings is that you can now attend them, which to me, I'll go to any time of day, but you know, you have meetings that start at 1am because everyone's all over the world. Um, and so they, they often can be very dense material. Um, but, you know, one of the simple things that came out of the management strategy evaluation is that the large pelagic survey, which is the only index, the only real index that was being used for commercial sized fish off the east coast of the United States was officially not accepted for use in the management strategy evaluation. So in other words, there is no workable used index of abundance for large fish off the entire United States East Coast. There's a larval survey. There's a Mexican uh, bycatch fishery, which obviously they're trying to avoid bluefin. So, it, it you know, it's a, there are people that believe in it. I'm not going to question their intelligence, but it's not ideal. Uh, a larval index is obviously not ideal given the alternate spawning areas and, and many other factors. And then um, the, uh, the other problem I'll just say is that that same large pelagic survey that is used for large fish, which was not accepted, um, is the same exact survey used for small fish with a few minor tweaks that the, the folks at Miami worked really hard for about 10 months with the fishing industry to try to figure out how to look at the data, not to cook the books, but to how do you interpret the data better? And they did a good job, but you know it's the same survey. And so I think um, it, it's to me, when you, just, when you say you can't count bluefin off the US East Coast right now, that that's something that needs to be addressed. And, you know, um, so it's, it, you don't have, we don't have a choice, I don't think. I mean, and, uh, and that's just the beginning of it is counting them, obviously. Yes. So, I mean, Chris, we, we probably started off with a uh, too complex of a subject here right. as well, we, as we, as we dove into counting bluefin. We'll get into that. We'll get into that for sure. Um, but, you know, with your experience, you know, on, on the HMS uh, and ICAT um, kind of advisory positions, can you kind of give our listeners, you know, a brief overview of how United States bluefin um, fisheries are, you know, managed and how how the quota systems work? You know, just briefly touch on, on yeah, that. Yeah, very quickly. It's uh, so, there, I mean, just looking to the present, putting aside the past, you know, right now what happens is there is various ICAT meetings uh, throughout the year, which is, for those that don't know, ICAT is basically UN for tuna um, as these fish go all over the ocean. And so that is the top. And then the ICAT has both a management arm and a scientific arm. The scientific arm is the SCRS. And then there's a bluefin working group. And so the bluefin working group within the ICAT SCRS is made up of scientists, uh, U.S. scientists like John Walter, who is actually the chair um, Canadian scientists, scientists from, you know, Libya, Morocco, you know, Tuni- you know, all of the countries around the Mediterranean and the Eastern Atlantic. And so there's a science and a management framework there, which is highly political um, at the end of the day, 
the the decisions that come out of it are highly political because no matter what the science is, there is a very robust and very intense international negotiation aspect to it. So when I go to a meeting for ICAT, the meetings run both by NOAA and the State Department because they see it as sensitive international negotiations, which don't always just have to do with bluefin. You could deal with you know how you're dealing with other species or even something totally unrelated to tuna. So it's it's a it's it tuna is often um, one chip in in a lot a much larger scheme. So anyways, a number comes out in theory from ICAT for either the Eastern Atlantic, which is a line down the middle or the Western Atlantic. There's a line down the middle separates the two for your listeners. It, you might want to know that the same fish are on both sides of the ocean. Uh, we catch the same fish yet. The Eastern Atlantic just went up to 45,000 metric tons and the Western Atlantic stayed flat at around 2,500 metric tons. And it's it's well known that the fish cross. So there's a high, highly political dynamic uh, negotiation. You know, the EU is a tough negotiator. You've got Norway getting involved more as the fish spread all over. And then that comes back to the highly migratory species division uh, under NOAA Fisheries, which is a very hands-on um, group based out of both Silver Springs and uh, and in Garfo and, and spread around in, in this virtual world. And then they take that quota, which is handed down, which is then the Western quota gets split between Canada, the U.S., Mexico, and a small bit goes to, for example, Bermuda. Um, and so UK gets involved in it. But, the, you know, it's small. It's really the U.S., Canada, and Mexico, and Japan, because Japan has a distant water, uh, longline fishery. And so it gets split up between those four. The U.S. gets a little over half of the Western Atlantic quota. Um, and, and then within that, you then have recreational, you have charter head boat, which is obviously, a, you know, a, um, a hybrid category. You have the general yeah. category, you have the long line fishery, which it's mostly a, uh, a bycatch fishery, but there is, um, some boats targeting it because they bought, um, the, the shares, um, for, they call them IBQs. And then there's the harpoon category, which is what we're a part of. So there's a lot of layers. There is no council. It's one of the, the unique aspects of bluefin. And ICAT is like if you went to the West Coast, the council is deeply involved in tuna matters and has an SSC. Um, whereas in on, on our coast, there is a HMS advisory group. Um, and we're just thankful, and I can stop it there, not to bore everyone, that the HMS people folks really work hard. Um, not that all no employees don't, but the HMS people work very hard to listen to all of the complaints and compliments that they get. And yeah. they really work hard, but it's a lot for them to do. Um, but that is one unique part is there is no SSC, there is no council. So it's entirely in the hands of NOAA, but you know, they, yeah, it's, it's, own, it's more, it's kind of its own entity that doesn't yep. necessarily, you know, doesn't some, sometimes, yeah. Yep. And sometimes, you know, like when, when we're dealing with council managed fisheries, um, it's definitely more complicated because you got to oh, yeah. kind of play, play to, you know, each end of the issue uh, with various council members. So, you know, maybe that's not the worst thing in the world, not dealing with those political uh, dynamics. Yep. Yep. It's a funny, it, it, you know, it's uh, the, the good thing about the council is it, is it gives in theory representation and, and more oversight, but there's no doubt that it adds a lot of, of layers. Um, yeah. And so there's already a lot of layers within NOAA just because of all the, the, the there's so many rules, you know, I think it's important for your listeners to realize that it's like, even though some, we all complain at times about what's going on, it, it is very hard not only to count tuna, 
but it's also hard to manage tuna fishermen. <laughs> and so it's, it's, we're very intense, you know, we're very involved and there's a lot of differences with, you know, that historically have, you know, when things are good, people start to fight each other. And, and so you have different gear types and, and that's something in the Bluefin Collaborative we've, we've, so our mission is science first, neutral science, that is objective science, but it's also bringing together all the user groups uh, so long as they're interested in doing, um, you know, good science uh, the right way and trying to, to find the answers and bridge that. It's really one of our part of our ethos is bridging that gap between all of the usually disparate and, and, and um, sometimes um, adversarial user groups and also yeah. do the same thing with NOAA and and uh, anyone else. But you're, you're, you're right. There, there's there's pros and 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 cons to uh the two systems and and i think hms does a really good job trying to yeah i mean we we've had we've had great experiences working with them and in you know some lower capacities i mean they've been thrilled to help out on the albi project Uh, they've been super super interested in that work um very very uh helpful and getting us tags um and helping the processing of, of of that data They've, yep. they've started giving us some uh, bluefin tags to get to our guides. They're like, oh, my gosh, you guys have this many guides that tuna fish and want want to tag right. and want to want to help science. You know, it's it, yeah, it, well, you find you find that the NOAA employees um, throughout NOAA are lacking data and it doesn't always come out like they won't always come out and say that. But it's as you get to know them more, you and you become closer to them you realize that one of the biggest problems we're all facing is a lack of data. So it's, for example, one of our guides was catching um, 55 inch fish off the vineyard and seven out of 10, he does charter head boat, but seven out of 10 fish that were caught in a, pat, a matter of two weeks at, in the 51 to 55 inch range had developed ovaries, um, which if you know anything about bluefin management, that's not supposed to be happening in the Western Atlantic, even though everyone knows it does. But then I, I was in contact with uh, the team down in Panama City, uh, the, the NOAA reproductive team in Panama City, which works out of the Southeast Center, which we all call Miami, even though it's much bigger than that. Um, so it's the, it's the Miami's top people for reproductive work. And it was obvious that they're just dying for samples. And, and so it's like we're now going down that road, too. Where it's like you everywhere you go, you see that 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 kind of tension between the fishing industry and the science in the, uh, community. That tension has often stopped us from collaborating. It, totally, totally. And, and Chris, like a, a, a point that we always you know try to make with you know NOAA council members is you know they're they're always they're always talking about like right like how, how f- most fishermen don't believe the data right and they don't do right. this and. Uh, an approach we've tried to take is, well, if we all collaboratively work together, if you yep. leverage all these people on the water, all of our guides, all of our captains, you know, even very interested private recreational anglers and yep. get them involved in data collection efforts, that's how you build that credibility. You build um, trust within the commu- with the various communities, and it's a, it's a win-win for everyone. Yeah, you know, it's... Um... Yeah, that's, you know, it's, it's part of a 501c3 that it's obviously our mission is pretty clear. Um, and to, yeah. to, 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 to have credibility, it doesn't matter what you are. If you don't take, in our opinion, if, if you're not going to do it 
in an open, transparent, neutral, kind of objective way, which is what we're doing. And it's like one of the things that I know that you, you want to touch on, but I'll just jump into it is, you know, you have genetics, for example, and I'm not a geneticist. Um, there <laughs> Nor are people, am I. When you read a paper on, for example, close kin mark recapture, which very different than just simple mark recapture, but the theory is, is that you, you get the DNA off tuna and you can look into close kin mark recapture, basically what there's a high level, like you'll read the papers and it'll kind of lay out the basics. And then it'll say, if you're not a geneticist, don't even bother reading the next section. You won't get it. And they're right. But you know, that what, what it really is about is taking, this is just one use of genetics and it was used in Southern bluefin tuna, which I think if I get it right, is a, it's an Australian, um, New Zealand kind of base fishery, but the fish are off Indonesia, but they used this close kin marker capture CKMR, um, which in, in simplest terms, it's like you, you take a lot of DNA samples and you then, um, you look for, initially they were looking for just matches. So you could see if there were parents and, and offspring and by getting a feel from recaptures on how many fish that you have genetically tagged and how many you recapture, you begin over time, if you do it statistically validly, you will get um, some kind of view of how many fish might be there. And it, it ended up showing lots and lots of fish. I think I saw one report where uh, one year they, they their analysis showed 2 million two-year-olds. So, you know, it, it was well accepted, industry bought into it, but that was from what we are all told, a single stock species. And so there's another simpler thing called just mark recapture. And this is tied back to spaghetti tags. In the old days, everyone would tag fish and everyone would report those fish. And you would get some sense of how many were out on the water released and how many recaptured and you begin to build an, an index. And so you can do the same thing with DNA. Uh, but, you know, it's like, I don't really know anything. So even simple questions about cross-contamination samples and in the, the simple things for a geneticist are oh. chris let, 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 let's let's roll back a little bit into yep. like what you guys are trying to look exactly. into with your genetic work and then we'll we'll I'm, we'll, we'll get into these that's as deep as you, your your listeners want to go so yeah uh, you know what we're doing right now is uh for the last 16 months and like i mentioned before we have a fin clip it's a tissue sampling program going on i know you have some of the kits all yep. you do is if you catch one, land one, release release one, but somehow have access to its yellow fin, you take the lot we give you a log book, you take the yellow fin, you know, the little yellow fins, um, you take a little snip of it, you put it in ethanol. Um, we're working with quite a, a wide uh it's it's still in its formational stage, but um a wide group of scientists from both coasts and even outside of the US, um, geneticists, reproductive scientists, um, we call it our science advisory panel, but you know, the genetics is, is just part of it, but we're doing a summer study um, in addition to collecting samples from Maine to, or from North Carolina down to Florida, um, building that ability um, for fishermen to gather that data, um, it, who I think, as you said before, are the best data gatherers, um, is uh, we are also doing a study because the world of genetics is so new. Um, we're working with a team out in Washington that is looking into what's the best next step because we're so new with genetics that, the, the, you know, there really is only a paper or two out on Atlantic bluefin tuna. One that gets into where they were born, which is another hot topic. Is there, is there two spawning areas? Are there more spawning areas? And so 
we're basically wading into genetics as fishermen. Um, much of it's over our head, but it really comes back to bringing in a team of top fishermen, um, anyone that really wants to do it, doing it right, storing those samples, building that DNA bank and, and getting a seat at the table for when DNA comes into the forefront, which it's very rapidly doing as yeah, yes. And so, but it's really the, the whole part of it is, is getting fishermen to actually see the value of doing science. And that enables us to gather lots of data, as you know. And yeah. uh, just um, to really have a more of a say in how the science is done um, physically. Now, the, the scientific analysis will always be done by scientists, but getting that data in, and, and it's not just genetics, it's, it's also reproductive organs. It's, um, there's a lot of work already been going on aging, but there's so much that we don't know. It's almost as if we don't know anything. That's how little. Yeah, it's like you don't know what you don't know. Right, right. And right. so uh, genetics, it's like, and I know your group's getting into it. It's like, all I can say is, is that um, from all the meetings I go to, genetics is, people call it a game changer, but it won't work if fishermen are not helping sampling, because if you don't get a lot of samples, it forces scientists to make assumptions on small sample numbers. And that is never good. And so, you know, I think one message I wanted to get through to your listeners is, it's not just with DNA, it's, it's, it's surveys, it's log books, it's, you know, catch and release. It's like, I know yeah, I mean, we, could, we, we could get into recreational bluefin reporting. <laughs> no, it's, it's, it's across the board. People are always worried to share information. Um, and we're trying to break that habit because I think one of the biggest flaws is that by not sharing more information, not only is the science failing, but I think just the resource of any of these species is misunderstood because so much is unknown. How is someone sitting in an office in Miami really supposed to know what's going 50 miles off of Maine if we don't show them? And so, yeah, I'll, 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 reiterate, I'll reiterate that to our listeners. Yeah. You will never be able to game the system if you're asked questions about your fishery. You, it will yeah, never it actually, work. Actually, you know, if I always, you know, and I know this is not popular to hear this because I know what cameras and, and VTR and all of these things entail, but you know, when, when there's a lot of situations where I wish we'd been forced to collect much more data. And, and a good example of this is the Southwest Nova Index for Bluefin. I think it's, in my opinion, one of the gold standard ind indices. Um, it's simply a logbook. So they have they have a little bit different fishery up there. It's, it's an allocation fishery. They have 100% reporting, but they report so accurately and so well that that logbook, just that simple logbook, is now one of the highly um, touted and accepted ind indices for bluefin abundance. So it's just a simple logbook, and it's being used as one of the only accurate indices. And so, you know, getting more data in is important, and not getting that data in will only come back to bite you. And so, yeah, and and, and Chris, like I know you're, you guys are working with the genetic stuff, you know, with commercial guys, recreational guys, obviously. Um, the, yep. the hybrid charter for hire. And, you know, one thing we've found with um, some of our captains who are doing, doing the acoustic tagging, who did genetic, genetic fin clips last year on Albies and are yep. still doing spaghetti tagging, their clients freaking love this stuff. They yeah, love being absolutely. part of the process and, yep. and like yep. contributing to science. So, you know, if, if, if any of our, uh, you know, listeners are um, interested in, you know, how to help and, you know, do stuff like that. There are so many different resources and I know you've got a, a good, you know, yeah, you, know I think, uh, stuff like that. you know, you just go to bluefincollaborative.org and you can sign up and we have kits. It's, it's, we have a way to ship them. It's, you know, I think 
I, I think one of the, I remember numerous captains last year telling me how interesting this was for them and their clients. And, you know, it's, 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 a, you, know, you mentioned DNA, people get excited, you know, yeah. but it is, it's also the beginning of, you know, we, we really are at the beginning of all, a lot of this. And so it's not only like cool, but it's new. And it's like, I just remember, you know, tagging will always have a place. I think the genetic tagging, it, they kind of call them, it's t- they technically started replacing genetic tag. So now when you hear tagging, it might mean genetic tagging. It's the same thing. If you put a, a tag in a fish or you get, you barcode it with, with a DNA sample, um, it's, it's essentially the same thing in a lot of ways. You're marking that fish. And, but I, I can still remember tagging a cod when I was like eight and I was like, oh, that's so cool. And, you know, I had one fish even come back. We've caught a lot of tuna with tags. Um, yeah. Well, that's what's interesting to me is like um, on your in your fin clip kits, you know, yep. that that form has, oh, did you stick a conventional tag also? Right. And it's right. like, if you get the genetics from that fish, release it with the tag and yep. God knows where it's recaptured. You know, you yep. can get a lot of cool information off that. Yep. yep. And, uh, you know, and I noticed there's, um, you know, there's electronic tags. You know, the problem with electronic tagging is the tags have a high failure rate and no one's really embarked on building a new one. So, you know, we have a lot of ambition. We're too ambitious, probably. <laughs> we're going to learn the hard way. How You know, that's part of what we're doing is there's so much that you, that can be done. How do you focus? Um, but one of the things that is failing is like electronic tagging. A lot of those tags uh, fail. I think I heard one study like 60% failed. Um, and so, it, you know, the building of a new tag would be great. But even just simple tagging, you know, just the movements of these fish is so important. And, you know, I think barcoding them. And, with- and here, Chris, before you jump in, I kind of want to like yep. differentiate that for our listeners. Yeah, I'm jumping um, around. Yep. Well, no, no, you're good. You know, because like for our Albi acoustic tags, they, right. they work so well because oh, yeah. inshore, yeah. inshore, they, there are so many more receivers and there are huge collaborative networks. Yeah. But when you're talking about the deep Atlantic and doing yeah, I was talking about know, satellite, cuts, yeah, th- yeah, I should have exactly. Well, your program, no, no, it's, actually, your program is really cool. I mean, it, the gold standard is if you had a trillion dollars would be to have a goose acoustic so I, for your listeners, I mean, when I say electronic tags, what I'm referring to is the, the the kind of the same tag they built 20, 30 years ago that reports back to a satellite. There are also archival tags, which you have to recapture the fish. But the, that's very different from what you're doing, which is technically I'm saying electronic, but yeah. there's a, an array of buoys and listening devices. You tag a, a, an albacore, a false albacore, it, it, it's kind of the gold standard is to have a listening device listening devices that can accurately capture the movements because those tags give off a signal and you know i think if you could blanket the ocean with with those types of devices or come up with a technology that allowed for such that would be awesome i mean it it, so your tagging is 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 very effective it's just the hard part is for bluefin is they're they're so big they move so much it's like thousands of mile migrations right (laughs) so theoretically you'd have to have um either million devices that listen or come up with something that can hear thousands of miles away and and know where that fish was but you know i think the satellite electronic tags are, are what i was getting at and you know, there's a high failure rate and there's a lot of people that think you could improve those, but some people think it's impossible, but you know, we know so little that like, there's so much you need to know. And and it's important for your listeners to know with Bluefin, they only recently 
officially accepted that the line that was drawn down the middle of the ocean in 1981 politically, the, the so-called East and West, management didn't even acknowledge that those fish crossed that line until like two years ago, last year. Yeah. It, so it, let's it, get in, let's get into that a little bit, Chris, because that's, yep. you know, kind of, you know, with the spawning implications, that's one of the things you guys are hoping to, you know, further pull out with some of this genetic work, like what's going on in the slope C and stuff like that. So if you, you can dive into that a little bit. Well, you know, it's, I think if you go back, you know, there's a lot of people, if you go back and read, you know, on, go on the ICAT website and type in like, go into the papers and go back to the, the, the earliest ones. I mean, you go back to the forties and fifties and, you know, people just went out on the water, they observed, they used simple technology. And I, and those old scientists noticed a lot of things. One of which is it looked like there was fish spawning off the East coast, you know, the continental shelf of the East coast, um, which is now, you know, been termed the slope sea, uh, which is, you know, the, the core here is that the whole structure narrative of bluefin tuna management is based on this idea that there's an eastern stock and a western stock, and that they home, you know, to those. Well, you know, the eastern stock only breeds, if you believe it, in, in the Mediterranean, um, and the western stock only breeds in the Gulf of Mexico. And more importantly, somehow the eastern stock starts breeding at age three to five. In the western stock starts breeding at eight to twelve, and the reason the slope C is an interesting thing is because everyone's been starting to see lots of activity, spawning activity in smaller fish in the west, and it doesn't and make you, just, any- you you were just talking about that earlier with um, developed ovaries, and I know you've done some gonad stuff. So there's a lot of papers already, workshop papers, um, a lot of work done by good scientists that have shown that there is most likely no difference in the age of maturity. And ICAT even has some things uh, in, in recent pretty official, uh, you know, reviews of assessments that, that say basically, you know, it doesn't look like there's much of a difference. But the reason that's important is because you ask yourself, going back to what I said before, how is it that one side of the Atlantic is catching 45,000 metric tons? And mind you, they turned down 56,000 metric tons because um, that was what was on the table, but they didn't have enough capacity. So it could have been market-wise too. Market-wise, right? and so yeah. And yet, and yet, this they call it sometimes a remnant Western stock, and and so one of the pillars of that so-called two-stock theory is that there's a, a, a very different age of maturity, and so what the slope C represents is is much um, it's symbolic as much as it is important scientifically, which it's both. But if you have what what could be happening in the slope C and is and you've had two different really kind of groundbreaking papers. One was Dave Richardson and et al., which I'll just say the Richardson paper in yeah. 2016, which showed he went out and did some really cool work. He's a larval scientist, um, among other things, out of Narragansett, um, part of Woods Hole. And he found these larvae and found them to be bluefin, found them to be lively. And his conclusion was that, you know, the whole system is probably wrong. And uh, then Chrissy Hernandez, who just moved to Oxford for another postdoc, but was at Cornell and did a second paper, a follow-up um, with Dave Richardson and, and, his, and, and, and his other co-authors kind of involved when she was um, working with uh, Pui. And uh, one of the questions that came out after the 2016 paper is just because you found larvae doesn't mean they're viable. 
her paper showed that they are not only viable, they are probably healthier than the ones you find in the Gulf of Mexico. And so here you have, you know, the foundations of um, what goes back to the Frank Mathers of the world in the 50s, 60s, in, in Molly Lutkovich and all of these people throughout the years that have been seeing with tagging data, with observations that there are mature fish that go to places that are not the Gulf of Mexico or the Mediterranean during spawning season. And on top of that, uh, most tuna spawn in an age gratified pattern. And so you could have large ones, some large ones spawning in the Gulf of Mexico and the smaller ones spawning somewhere else. And so what the slope C would represent is not only a new spawning area, which gets at the resiliency of the stock and, and probably highlights um, slope C makes it sound simple. It's, it could be the entire East Coast. It could yeah. be wherever it works, but uh, it also gets at just the whole management structure. And so one of the things there is um, genetics. And so stock ID is the, is the term that that would be under. And, you know, there's one paper that just came out of um, a Spanish group. It's AZTI. Uh, but it's that was really the first real paper that dealt with Spanish. I mean, dealt with uh, where are bluefin spawning when you look at the genetics? Because before that, they were looking at the uh, they were looking at chemical signatures within the ear bones. I you know in the otoliths. But one of the interesting things, just to, to cap it off, is that makes you wonder is that if you read the Spanish paper uh, and you read through the data under their system, they found thirteen eastern fish in Eastern being um, by their genetic system, they were deemed to be Eastern genetically in the Gulf of Mexico during spawning season. And they could tell from histological sampling, uh, you know, looking under the microscope at their ovaries and their, and their gonads that those fish, uh, all 13 were actively spawning and one had spawned within the 24 hour period. So you had Eastern fish in the Gulf of Mexico spawning. All right. And so, it's just, it just makes you, you know, and it just like, when you hear that, it's like, what I just think of is how much do we not know? Yeah. And, 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 you know, the, the kind of the, I would say the, the summation of what, what they, you know, the only answer they could come up with is, you know, possibly this is a new phenomenon and we just happen to see it. And that's kind of what you hear with the slope C is maybe the slope C is a new thing and, and maybe it is, but, you know, our goal is to, um, one of our key goals is to get to the slope sea. You have to do it right. You have to sp you have to sample fish on the slope sea and look at their you know I, you know the going the ovaries the the <laughs> testes. You have to like look at them because you need to know if they're spawning. Because one of the theories is that maybe they're just passing through. So in order to know if that's a real true spawning area, you got to get larvae. You got to look at the DNA. You got to get the big ones. You got to look at their DNA. You also have to look at their reproductive organs to see if they're spawning. And then, you know, there's a lot of work left in genetics because, you know, they, there's just so much to, to, to determine when you think of how complicated a genome is. Um, you know, we're, we're, we haven't started whole genome sequencing, which is just looking at the whole genome of bluefin tuna. They're using these things called SNPs, which are just, you know, they're combinations of DNA that are based off of human DNA that uh, you look for patterns. And so basically um, there's so much to do, but the, the idea of a giant spawning area off the East Coast, which is, it's pretty hard to deny as a thing. It's the, the question is, is how big is it? How much does it contribute? Are there multiple stocks? Uh, uh, you know, all, there's so many things that we don't know, but you know, I think nobody is out, nobody, oh, sorry, nobody is out there 
um, trying to really study it. And so, you know, it takes a lot of work. You have to have boats go out far out. They have to have lots of permits. You have to have top scientists. But, you know, that's just a snippet of what we're going to try to do. But, you know, and, and I think one thing I'd mentioned to your listeners, um, not everyone here is a, a bluefin person listening. Yeah, yeah. You've got big eyes. I, I, I think everyone has dreams of getting tight to one of those big uh big you know 70 inches on spin gear you know right yeah but, uh, you, know, you, you also have boats though that rely heavily on blue on yellowfin on big yeah. eye and so even though we're the bluefin collaborative um you know many of our uh either board members or people that are involved care you know for example right now as you know there's been a lot of yellowfin south of the cape and a lot of the yeah. boats that, that you know the, the the hurricane i think might have shifted the small tuna back a bit yeah, um, I've heard they've they've got even closer from where they uh, they were so, set up a month you know, ago. We know even less about Big Eye. We know even less about Yellowfin. We know even less about Swordfish. And I know the Billfish Foundation is working hard on Billfish. Um, but you know all of the HMS species, and that includes the albacore, false albacore. I mean, I remember I was out in Murray Basin uh, three or four years ago, and we thought we had found the mother load, the absolute mother load of small bluefin. And they were false albacore, and there was ten miles of them. We we finally turned around, and um, they were the biggest kind. They were in the middle of nowhere, and they were gone the next day. And there was millions. I'm telling you, millions. Yeah. And you know, it's just these fish move so much that you know. I think you know, getting fishermen involved is so key because um, you know we go to the places. So take the Slope Sea for example. You know, pelagic longliners get out there. You know, you can't just rely on Noah ships on incredibly tight budgets, uh, expensive budgets. But, you know, Dave Richardson did a lot of the work he did in on his own time with his own microscope. He didn't have a budget for it. He just had uh, an itch to learn more, went after it, and they found him. And so it's like, it just kind of highlights how little do we know. And I think that circles back to what's going on. I think blue, fishery management in general is often based in large part on budgets, manpower, and simplicity and you can't blame well, you say chris also real quick when you say budgets you know you're talking about congress and you know a, a, a hyperly divided congress where the you know noah's noah's budget noah's budget is going to get cross stuck in the crossfire to a degree and that's that's science for all of these fisheries that we we all yeah, depend on it, um, you, know? you know and that's why having a you know it's been pleasant working with your group because you know i think um, we need to make sure Congress understands, educate them. I mean, obviously, as a 501c3, we're not lobbying, but, you know, educating and advocating for NOAA. So uh, as you might know, we worked hard to, um, with certain offices to, to get money into the next appropriations bill just by educating our, our congressional delegation, especially Susan Collins' office, who is always great with fishermen and, yeah. and, and her team at Maine. And, and, you know, there's a line item in the budget which is a million dollars for NOAA. It's like there's no strings attached. It has nothing to do with us. But that's how strongly we feel that there needs to be more science done is, is you need to get more money for NOAA in, in addition to what we're doing. So it's not yeah. just, it's not, it, it, the whole system is underfunded. And, uh, you know, I think if we can break through that gap of, of kind of um, people worrying about budgets, you know, one of the things that worries the Miami folks is, is if, if if you bring up a complex thing like the slope C, how are they going to possibly study that and do it right? And so it, it puts pressure on them to sometimes resist, not resist, but it's harder for them to go along with it because it's such an open-ended question. And that's where we're going to come in. We're going to try to 
you know, bring more funding into it and, and, and bring more data into it. And by bringing that data into it, um, it's, it's as of yet, it's, it's fishermen doing it out of their own goodwill. It's free. And, and one of the totally. most, one of the most expensive parts of any project, I remember talking to one of the most high level scientists at ICAT when it comes to bluefin about a paper on market capture and, you know, his budget was, um, only allowed, I think for like 50 sample, the number was so low. And I said, well, what if we got you thousands, you know, and almost dropped the phone, you know, yeah. and it's like, we could easily do that. And so, um, you know, it's about building, um, a, a team, you know, in your, your group's been great. It's, it's a pleasure, uh, having, you know, meeting you and, and Cullen is, is, is already a, a you know, a star in all of this, even <laughs> he's though a he's, rock star. he's probably getting to that stage where even he's tired. Um, you know, he will never admit that, but, you know, I think finding a team of people like Cullen, like yourself, like myself that, um, are in the fishing industry, we know the line between fishery, you know, we aren't scientists, we aren't going to tell scientists what to do, but we can help facilitate better scientists. And and, and there's often a lot of pushback. I have to admit, you know, I've been on some delegations at ICAT where I had to, I had to nose my way into a group of the world's most renowned bluefin scientists from 20 different nations. And here's Chris Weiner, um, <laughs> who's a fisherman from Maine. And, you know, it, it's hard because it's like a lot of people at first wonder, what's he doing here? Um, but I think, you know, by leading, um, by being objective, by just asking the kind of questions that we understand and, and not going in and say more quota. I'll, I'll, I'll give you... I'll give you an example on that. Um, yep. So, you know, we, our listeners probably by now know we have like this um, app in development and it's out oh, being yeah, used. Yep. Yep. Um, and so we brought it to um, some fishery management entities that for certain fish species, there is a complete zero yep. length samples for certain fish because they're um, within a slot limit, like redfish. They're, you can't right. kill big fish. Um, in the Atlantic. So right. the stock assessment doesn't have those released lengths, which are an integral part of an, of a stock assessments. And the, 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 the pushback we, we initially experienced, um, you know, because sure, sure some of that data might be biased because our, our guides are great Good anglers. Right? <laughs> yeah. But right at, at the, at, at, at a certain point, it's like, you know, how that, that's such a low hanging fruit. You know, yep. you have to just accept that data at a certain point if you don't have it to yep. begin with. So that, you yeah, know, we're, we're on app, similar pages there. Yeah, your app is a, it was a good, it, I remember you explaining it to me, it's, it's got a lot of, you know, and a lot of potential. And, you know, I think that you hear things like, that's what you hear sometimes about the Southwest Nova Index, for example, is, well, those guys are really good. You know, maybe that skews the data, but it's like, you know, I think that's where I, I disagree with that, first of all, because, you know, they, they're not really allowed to catch and release. There is tight regulations. They have a lot of coverage in terms of um, in terms of monitoring and, you know, different sectors. And it's it's a really good effort index. But, you know, it still has that. Well, it's fishermen. Maybe it's impacted. And the same thing happened, you know, as fishermen, we're always going to be dealing with that because, you know, you always got to overcome the, well, they just want more quota thing, which is like, that's, uh, this is not the group I would have started if, if I was going to do that, because this is, I, we're going into a world where I have no control over anything other than how we do some of the sampling. And yeah. you know, I'm not going to influence these top level scientists in genetics. It's like, you know, we're just trying to get things going, but you still yeah. have to deal with that. And you know, the only way we're going to beat that um, back is, you know, is to just collect more data than anyone else, do it better than anyone else. 
adhere to those high standards and have scientists around that uh, make their own minds up and do the science. And so you got to have these top scientists. But, you know, I think fishermen, you know, the idea that fishermen um, data is not useful, it's just not it's not true. And, you know, I think, but the more data you can get and then trying more to build data, more, more data is better data, right? Yeah. That's our, really our mantra is like flood yeah. the zone data. And, yeah. you know, we, we're not quite sure every, not, you know, not every little detail about, so like I said, we're doing a summer project or, or we, we funded a summer project um, where we don't know the outcome of that, but it's, it's going to, how do you best use these genetic samples? Yeah. Uh, we're working on, we're well, well within, uh, well, well along the path of developing a tool, multiple tools for, um, pin clips are great, uh, but there's better ways to do it. So, you know, we're trying to innovate there, um, which you guys will be a part of. And so, you know, where we can help is getting more and then creating kind of that, that scientific ethos, you know, um, which I think there's a lot of fishermen that need to have more of that. I'm not afraid to say that. It's like, you know, you need to put the fish first a lot of times if you want to have a future. And that, that's that's right. Like our, our motto, right? Better business through conservation. And con- right. conservation can be viewed as, you know, many things. Right. Scientifically, understanding the fish being one of them. Um, right. Well, I mean, Chris, like I... I, I couldn't love this model more. I mean, obviously, like we 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 it's have a tough, similar though. model. I will say it's it's tough. You know, it's tough. But we're crazy people. So. It, it's so exciting, and you know, this is such a, a cool fishery that yep. you know, so many different diverse ways to to prosecute it, right? Yep. Um, and so, like, I mean, if we haven't you know bored everyone too much by going into the dearths of genetics and and uh internet you'll you'll at least find out who cares about management Um, yeah exactly well uh, you know if what i was getting at is if we haven't lost everyone yet if you could go into bluefin harpooning because i I know i've seen um yeah one of your board members uh uh, tyler McAllister, doing it on youtube and i'm like as a hunter i need to see that firsthand you know (laughs) yeah well you're welcome anytime but yeah so we um so yeah we have a 38 foot boat it's it's got a 30 foot tower and a 20 foot five foot pulpit we have um it's like a 12 foot harpoon we have it's attached 900 feet of rope but the first 100 feet has a um uh why we we make rope that has a wire built um woven into it that wire then attaches to the dart my, you know, our driver, my dad, in this case, in the tower has a button. So if we hit a fish, it's called an electric harpoon. A lot of people think that means you shoot the harpoon, but you don't. Um, so we go out and we we try to guess where they're going to be. We look for them with our eyes. Um, we, we have really no technology other than binoculars, which aren't very helpful most of the time. <laughs> and we, we look for them, we sneak up behind them, and then we throw the harpoons at them. And, you know, we have a 73-inch limit but the harpoon category itself is only allowed two between 73 and 82 so um a lot of our fish have to be over 82 inches and this year um if you found a 70 inch or you were doing well because most there was so many fish there still are so many fish in the 100 to 110 inch range really from as far as i know montauk to newfoundland but so we um but you know we go out and you know we try to read everything from where the bait is so tuna Bluefin tuna, it's like kind of our theory, um, not to give away too much, keep it general. So yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, a lot of times you'll see tuna eating close to shore. um, And then for whatever reason, a lot of them turn, you know, offshore. And and this in Maine, that can mean east, that can mean southeast or south. 
and they head out and they keep swimming. It's they come into these murky, tidy places where the herring or the pogies are and then leave a lot of times. So most of the fish we catch are 20, 30, 40 miles out, either in areas with pretty water, uh, deep, pretty water where they're traveling. And then a lot of times they'll end up wherever they want to end up. Let's call it Murray Basin or Wildcat or, you know, out east in Chatham, you know, all these deep areas these where, where the water is often clear. And then they'll just stop and they'll hang out and they get really hard to catch in those places because the bunches get big. But we're generally catching them. It feels like to and from their feeding grounds, you know, like kind almost of in- like they're almost like they're digesting. Right. Like I've seen stripers yeah. and bluefish they'll Never just stop. sit on a flat. They'll, they'll yeah. be on a flat and almost like sunning and they won't eat yep. sometimes. And it's like, yep. you know, they're Not probably digesting. Uh, yeah, it'd be really cool to do a study on like just their daily movements, but you know, that yeah. wouldn't have the policy impact. So we can't focus on that. But, you know, there's a lot, you know, if you think about it, I think I read once that they have to be the equivalent of like seven or eight knots of water moving over their gills. So, I mean, theoretically they can swim in circles, which we call cartwheeling um, or milling. Um, yeah. But, you know, we'll go out to these places far offshore where, you know, you'll find bunches of 10,000, 20,000, which are really hard to get onto. Um, the, the, the most ideal situation for harpooning is finding, you know, the smaller bunches that are headed in or out in a straight line. Um, we sneak up behind them generally at eight or 10 knots. And, you know, there's a lot involved in knowing which fish to drive onto. You know, if there's a bunch of eight or 10, there's often one that's further back. It requires the driver and the harpooner to really see the whole bunch, know how fast they're moving, know when to throw. Um, but when it all works out, it's, it's the, I don't see how there's a more exciting way to catch anything. Um, in, in 99% of the time that electric harpoon works, you hit the button and the fish, which it's good for everyone involved in, and the meat, um, you know, it just stops and it's over with. Now, if that doesn't work, they, the traditional um, way of doing it um, before electric harpoons, they will take out, in our case, 900 feet of rope with a buoy and uh, a radar reflector. And you then, it's called putting out a flag in, in our case. And even though most people use poly balls now, um, we still use flags. And, and so then you have to hand haul it back and often fight it um, because the big ones will actually figure out how to kind of uh, use the tide to their advantage. So, you know, oh, yeah. they'll fight. it's fighting that, that rope that is what tires them out, but they'll figure out how to drift and so you'll have to fight them. And, and most of the times we come home whooped after that uh, happens. I, I um, can imagine T- tug of war with a 900 pound animal beast does not yep. uh, seem yeah. particularly enjoyable. Yeah, yeah, you know, and the big ones, like they have like a, especially new, early in the year, they have some, our, our buyer actually is convinced they have a different metabolism. You can see it in their meat that it's, it's almost like if you swam thousands of miles from a spawn or you know, hundreds of miles, whatever it is, if you've been traveling from a spawning ground, you've burnt all your energy building eggs or, you know, and, and you get far, far away. Like, just think about it. You, you leave your spawning ground. How do you even know where to go? They obviously have some deep energy and the ones early in the year, they're mean. I'm telling you, they're meaner. It's like, as they get more, uh, well, it's like salmon, right? Like those cr- like salmon seal, yeah. those chromers. Like fish. They're like, yeah. Intense. Like I have a video of one we got this year. It took off. And the, the time the pole was in the air, it, it took off and you can't even see it taking off. It's, it's, and it was 110 inches. So it's like, how does a fish that big just disappear? Um, that's how fast they are. And so it's like tying on to a car. You know, it's uh, generally that's not what happens. It's, it's very, um, it's, it's a really cool fishery. There's, there's probably, I think, 39 boats in the harpoon category. 
you know, we've been, um, you know, driven a little bit into the harpoon category because of daily limits and uh, days off in the general category, which, you know, if you, if you have days off as a harpooner, those are going to be the nice days. <laughs> so yeah. it's like kind of, but you know, it's, it's a good fishery. There's a lot of it here in Maine, the other hot spots, the Cape, uh, Cape Cod, Chatham, especially. Um, and there's little pockets here and there down the coast. You know, it's, it's a cool fishery. We also harpoon swordfish, but um, you know, without an airplane, it's pretty hard to fish them. Cause they, yeah. they are really good at, you know, we, we caught one that was dressed 700 and it was making no sign. We just saw it under the water. You had to run it over basically. And so um, I've heard stories of that, you know, back, they, in, I don't know back in the day. Do I don't know how yeah. they do it. Yeah. They, they will literally be a quarter inch under the ocean swimming full speed and make not a single sign. And, you know, you'll just see them swim by the boat and, and swordfish are so mean or prehistoric that they are not the least bit afraid. So we're, with a tuna, you know, you're, you're always trying, like they will take off the moment they know you're there on average, the swordfish, the whole key is letting them know you're there. So you take them head on, you know, the only ones that have taken off on us are the ones we tried to drive on like tuna and we spooked them cause they didn't know who we were, but you know, it's probably a little too much information, but you know, when, if you, see, <laughs> when you see a swordfish go right at it and don't, don't try to be cute because they, they are like prehistoric like they do not care about you at all that you know people talk about sharks i think i'd rather be in the water with other than a mako i think swordfish is the second thing i'd least want to be in the ocean with and yeah. you know maybe i'm crazy but they uh they're intense animals but so harpooning is a good fishery there aren't many fisheries harpooning in the u.s but you know you're obviously welcome we, you know we're trying to get more video of it but that's how you know we get sucked into it and i know one of the things that you also wanted to touch on, which is this leads directly into it is the herring issue. And yeah. one of the reasons, you know, I got into herring right outside of college was because harpooning is very different from hooking. No one trolls anymore up here. A lot of the hook fishing is, I know off Chatham, there's a lot of drifting. There is more trolling. There isn't any trolling here anymore. It's all live lining um, yeah. on, on anchor. And so um, no one, you know, um, which, which is very different. And, you know, um, it's it's a change over time actually which it's funny we used to have chumming um and uh lot, lots of chumming and um but harpooning you know one of the things we're just a different fishery in a lot of ways in in the amount of movements and and how how often we so we go out on any given day like we the way we figure out where we're going now some people will just go back to where they were the day before and, and in a lot of situations recently that's the best way to do it because you know, um, the weather's been bad, the water's been dirty, you know, you, you go to some faraway place and you get there and there's tide rips and it's brown and you just get discouraged. But, you know, generally in a normal year, it's like we change where we're going often. And so you, you're always looking for the right places, the right water, the right bait, where is that water outside of the bait? And that takes us everywhere from our boat, from inside of P town, one way or the other, generally 20 or 30 miles east of it. Um, all the way down to the Canadian border. I've actually had to turn around. We were chasing a bunch once uh, and, and had to turn around because it went right into Canada. Yeah. And so um, we would go all over the place. And so the midwater pair trawls that, so, uh, you know, I know is a big issue for your group. Herring is the, the species that fattens tuna up and fat tuna are better for everything because they're healthier, they spawn more and they're more valuable. And so it yeah. takes and, and, and I mean, like, just to bring it back to our group, like, I mean, striped bass, bluefish, everything benefits from a healthy herring. Herring resource. is so much more fattening. I mean, you watch a herring digest, 
you know, a pogey will sit there for days, it feels like, but that herring is almost gone because it just melts, it turns into yeah. fat, you know, and, and so all of these species, stripers, everything needs to reproduce well and to reproduce well, a big part of it is obviously eating well. And so a lot of things like sand eels, menhaden, they're all important, but herring is the one that really, and there are other things like capelin up in Canada and in mackerel, but mackerel are hard to catch. They're like little tunas. They're, they're like fast and evasive. Um, you know, it, herring is the one. And so, you know, in, in 19, in the nineties, the, um, there was a scientist out of the Northeast science center who basically went out to the world and said, bring your, bring your boats, bring your talent to come catch herring. You can walk on them all the way to George's. And so you had a lot of companies, mostly out of Ireland, show up, and they brought over pear trawling. And, and for your listeners that haven't seen it, um, pear trawlers are generally each boat is the biggest boat you'll ever see in New England. Or, you know, um, it, it will it, in big it doesn't always matter, but we're talking about a giant. You're, you're talking about an industrial sized. Yeah, I mean, 150. Dart. The 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 limit was 165. So most of them were anywhere from 110. 120 up to 140, 150, but then they have a net so big and they want to tow it so fast that they put two of those boats together. So you already take the biggest trawler you're going to see off the coast and you put two of them together and you double the speed and you use a mesh that is so small, it looks like a butterfly net and they can wipe out. We called it localized depletion. Um, that, that was the term that came out, but it's just wiping out aggregations of herring. Yeah. So you know, the New England Fishery Management Council several years ago um, established a midwater trawl buffer zone that pretty much spanned from Maine down to Connecticut um, yep. that pushed those midwater pair trawl boats off 20, 25 nautical miles yep. where they couldn't operate in those inshore, nearshore waters. Um, and yep. the, the justification that NOAA and GARFO at the time came up with was localized yep. depletion, which you know, as fishermen, we all understand if there's no bait, the fish aren't going to be there. And if there's no near shore food source, they're not going to be near shore. Um, yep. However, that is at this time entirely unjustifiable. You know, there's no science to back it up. So yep. a court case two years ago was decided um, that uh, vacated that rule and um, now. And now they, the said New they, England, they said they couldn't, there was no proof of localized yeah. depletion, which like, if you really think out, how could you ever prove it? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's honestly, it, how do you prove such, but it's, but I always give the example of for your listeners, let's say you had a, a pool or a, even like a bay that was somewhat enclosed and you have a hundred mackerel and you catch 98 of them. What do you call that? You know, it's yeah. like that there isn't nine. Some people think even some scientists think that there's this like, giant swarm of fish out there that just you know if, if you catch half of it they're oh, boom half of them come back no it's, it's not how it works there's aggregations there's hot spots and so but it's it's almost impossible to prove and so as you were saying they after many years of work and remember yeah. this started in 2001 with amendment yeah. seven uh with i don't even remember what that was amendment one probably um amendment i don't even remember anymore to it the was, herring to the herring yeah, fmp so the herring fmp was and it finalized in 2007 which put in a summer buffer zone in the in the Gulf of Maine, and then um, everyone was like, "Well, why did we not protect everywhere else?" And so, like you said, we 
there was a big fight to get that same protection. And, and, and incredible public involvement. Like, Huge. I mean, I, and it took I, many I, years, many, many years. And then a court threw it out in the blink of an eye because I, I won't say some, all of my thoughts, but because the court didn't <laughs> fully understand. But most importantly, it's because they didn't, user conflict, which is much easier to show, yeah. didn't didn't get enough play in that court battle. And and, well, and, in the, and in the federal register, and in the like federal justica- justifications. And so, and so my guess, so it seems to me like, you know, even though I dropped out to start this group a little bit, in the meantime, yourself and many others have kept that yep. alive. And now you have a new round of, um, uh, of management meetings coming up that involve yep. the user conflict as a more yep. specific. So that, that's going to be the new justification and council members like Mike, Mike Peardnock and yeah, Peter, Whalen, Peter yep. Whalen, who's our uh, board member from New Hampshire um, and some others are really, uh, you know, trying to move that needle because even though like, this is something that I've been hearing a lot, like, Oh, why are you guys even wasting your time with that? Quotas are so low. And it, it goes back to the, to the work you're doing. Like just cause you know, something's not necessary now. Like, you can be proactive in fisheries It'll management. Go It'll go yeah. back up because, yeah. and the, the scary part is, is, and this is why I was helping the main Persane fleet um, before disaster relief, before the collapse. Remember, we went to meetings for 10 or 15 years. It's where we learned some lessons, but I don't think it would have made a difference with the team involved. But, you know, we we went to many, many meetings for many years saying herring is collapsed. It's gone. Yeah, it, There is no herring. And, and yet the herring assessment was showing more herring than ever. And that's kind of what brought me back to this this science thing is you know we don't want to see that happen with tuna either way it's like if you might have more than they say or less than they say you want to have an accurate count but herring is just as bad as everything else and there was many many years where they, they were saying there was more herring than you need and uh, there was none and so they fished down that stock to the point where these incredibly efficient hair trawlers i'm telling you the most efficient thing you'll ever see in your life is 250 foot 2,000, 3,000 horsepower boats towing a net with basically no mesh, it's so small, and and towing it right through aggregations over and over and over again. And it just either wipes that spot out or the fish are thin. And it's... I mean, it happened at it happened at Jeffrey's last last fall. I, I, I heard guys all talking about it like and that was that was on mackerel too that's the other kind of it's funny just you know it's like one of the one of the big things that was going on was um towing on spawning grounds and you know there's a lot of stories of boats coming in with with fish so full of spawn that the the wharf was slippery and uh you know that happened on georgia specifically they targeted absolutely targeted spawning herring on you know because herring lay their eggs on the ground in mats and so if you're towing on spawning fish which is why spawning closures came up but the other point is you just mentioned if you look at the landings for mackerel so once this capacity for herring showed up they actually started targeting herring and mackerel throughout the winter mostly mackerel and the if you look at the landings um hair trawl landings shot up in the uh, 2000 2001 um they took over the mackerel fishery and you had a, a stretch of 10 years where in the winter, they were catching 40, 50,000 metric tons of mackerel off the mid-Atlantic. And so that was out of sight, out of mind. No one even really knows that was going on. But one of the dirty secrets of that fishery is that the amount of herring that was dumped because yeah. herring and mackerel swim together. Mackerel well, plants. And, and the river herring and, and, and river herring, which is sh- like shad issues too. Yeah. You could wipe out a whole river, no problem. And in in little haddock, little pollock, squid. Yeah. I mean, the I mean, whole the bike, shed, like, Stripe, stripe, stripers are getting in there. I've seen videos of guys hauling over 
hundreds of stripers before you oh, know yeah, it's, it's, uh, so but it really was the whole coast and so um you know i can't stress enough to your listeners how important it is to stay uh, attuned to the midwater trawl issue um midwater trawl is also i always put it in quotes air quotes we were at a meeting once all you need to know where they said well if you don't fish on bottom why don't you put net sensors on and, and you measure, you know, cause they have lots of technology for nets and they stood yeah. up and said straight up, you know, you can't put sensors on the bottom of the net. It'll rip off every time. Right. And so, you know, there is no such thing as midware trawling in, in new England. Th- th- those boats fish inches from the bottom and they're yeah. very talented. They tow fast and there's lots of dumping. We tried for 12 years to get monitoring. Um, and it was made very clear that, one of the reasons it was hard to do is because there's just naturally what they call slippage. Like, let's say you get a hundred thousand, everyone will ask, well, why would a herring boat dump herring? Well, herring bait users like lobstermen don't want spawn herring that are full of food or, or feedy or full of spawn because those fish will rot. And so um, you will, there was no rules against it. You would just dump your herring and go again and probably get it. And so, it was this this constant dumping that was going on. And if I told you all the stories, you'd probably vomit. But it's well known. It's like I was enough in the hearing industry to know what's going on. Uh, so not only is, is the gear type deadly efficient, it has no place in New England, in my opinion. I'm not afraid to say that. Um, and uh, it, it's certainly not inshore. Um, but it's it's not even monitored. And in fact, uh, after 12 years, we we ended up with nothing. And so there's still no monitoring. And so the biggest, most effective and highest bycatch boats are are the least monitored. And uh, I'll just say on top of that, you know, it's um, it's not about the size of the boat. It's not about how much you catch. I worked with purse saners from Maine that we fished around my whole life. Never made a difference. Some boats caught millions of pounds a year. And you'd never know they were there because they were nipping off little corners of huge herring schools down deep. It's really hard to do. Um, and it was very passive. And, and yet um, there are certain, and even the, there's boats out of Rhode Island, for example, that use small mesh bottom trawl, which they felt threatened by the midwater trawl fight and uh, would, would say, well, if you go after them, you're going after us. And, and that's one of the things that makes me most angry in the fishing industry. Even ground fish boats got into that. It's like, there are some gear types that should not be allowed. And the only one I've come across in my life in person is midwater trawling, paratrawling, especially. And yeah. um, one of the last things I'll say is that I learned this over time is, you know, there is a single a boat or two that single crawls and they have a disadvantage because apparently herring are much more um, responsive to boats above them than you would think. And so the paratrawling allows that same net to be towed and they never have a sense that you're there until that what the cables which are used to funnel the fish into the giant nets um so it's it's pair trawling midwater trawling in itself is is a deadly way to catch herring but pair trawling is midwater the gear and pair trawling is like the activity right like yeah, the, yeah. so there is a boat it. for example called the providian though that is a large boat out of portland but they have a disadvantage because they have to steam they're fishing directly over what they're catching and apparently that as powerful as that boat is it's it's the the pair trawl setup is deadly is this all i can say and so i mean that's what i always stick to is just the the efficiency and effectiveness to remove incredible in the worst way possible volumes of yeah and then not only that they followed us they would follow yeah the tuna guys follow our fleet we would go find tuna one night 
And next morning we'd show up, there'd be 20 pair trawlers there. And that's what led to the fight that got him out of the summer. Yeah. Well, I just would yeah. add that, you know, that's where like our group, you know, where, where the Bluefin Collaborative and, and even your group can have an impact there is over time, we need to have better data on where we're fishing because yeah. when it came to that court battle, even the user yeah. conflict issue, like the Great South Channel fishery, which has been decimated um, because that was a herring spawn tuna fishery, you know, the tuna were there to eat the herring spawn. There was not enough data to show that we fished there. And so where these scientific-based groups can help is gathering location data, getting fishermen to report so that when we go around this next time, there's data on where we're at. And that also ties into wind too. Totally, because we totally. I mean, we don't have a lot of data, so that, you know, but no. get involved. There, anyone listening still to this, get involved. Yeah, and and that that leads perfectly into what I was going to say. You know, even though the justification was probably weak for the previous attempt for the midwater trawl zone, the the diversity in the coalition fighting the midwater trawl battle was incredible. It was commercial interest, recreational fishing, charter for hire, just coastal coastal businesses, whale watching, stuff like that. Um, well, all it was across the board. board. In yeah. the most, the, actually, the most, the most decimated and most um, upset were those that use gear types for herring that aren't destroying it for everyone else. And I think and, that's and, and mackerel and mackerel. I mean, there's an automated mackerel, jig you know, and, yeah. and everything else that they catch is bycatch, like million pounds of haddock. Just dump it, you yeah. know. And and so, um, you know, I think you know, it's it's um, when when one user group starts to negatively impact other user groups, then. You should question that. And, and that, just to be clear, it's like if you're a ground fish dragger listening to this, it's like, no, this has nothing to do with you. If you're a yeah. small mesh bottom trawl, stop, don't get sucked into it by the midwater trawl lobby. This has nothing to do with you. This yeah. is about pair trawling, midwater trawling for herring and where you do it and how you do it. And to me, it's the least you can ask for to provide some coastal buffer from this destructive yeah. behavior. And to be honest with you, it should go further than that. It, it, you know, I always say, it was a compromise to go to 20 or 30 miles. It shouldn't yeah. be allowed. It's, it's like, and I'm not afraid. I won't say that about anyone else, but I'll say it about this. They should not be allowed. And, you know, if those boats want to fish for herring, you know, many of them switch over to squid go out in the canyons in the mid-Atlantic, stay there because, you know, it's a good place for you. Um, but, you know, I think that the way that a lot of times you catch herring is you tow through the areas where the whales are, where the tuna are, where the haddock are, where the stripers are where the porpoise are, where the birds are. It's like, they're not out there just towing on squid um, deep in some deep formation that isn't being actively fed upon. They'll tow right through Stellwagen in life. the middle of, yeah. of, of the life. And, and so I think, you know, um, forage is the base of all of this and uh, premium quality forage. And so it's like, I always tell people, it doesn't really matter how many tuna there are if there's not enough food. And that's where pogies and sandales have helped kept things going. But, you know, as we've seen, neither put the fat on that herring does. So you need that combination. You, you sometimes hear, well, why do you need herring? It's because it's the only one that really, truly makes them fat. So you need the whole spectrum of, of forage, but you need to have herring. And, yeah. and, and, and I mean, you know, again, I, I brought up like quotas are so low now. Yep. You, that, that level of efficiency, um, as we've seen, you know, the herring fishery just collapse. It, it provides some level of buffer for that yeah. resource yeah, to but, potentially know, rebuild. Plan for, plan for things to come back. And, you know, and that's what I was getting about with the Saners. It's like, hopefully when it does come back, those that didn't cause the problem will still be around. But one of yeah. the one of the top Saners pa just passed away, which has nothing to do with this, but it's sad. But his son has 
taken over. Another Saner was sold. You know, there's just, uh, you know, you know, you want it to come back and have the right people, the right gear. That's the best way to manage is to have the right people, the right gear fishing in. You know, there's nothing, nothing in my life I've seen as destructive to the resource uh, and the ecosystem as pair trawling off New England in the Mid-Atlantic. And so, you know, thank you guys for fighting it. Get everyone involved. And, yeah. uh, you know, and um, I think it's a good battle. And, you know, hopefully those still listening will have the interest. But really, your comments at meetings make a big difference. And, you know, a lot of guys are scared to speak up or people. And that's not just guys. A lot of um, fishers, <laughs> fisher, yeah. fishermen, but men and women are, are scared. Yeah. To speak up. Don't be afraid. You can always do it virtually these days. Send in a letter. And no matter email. How it, it couldn't be easier these days to get yeah. involved. It really is actually so yeah. easy. And so don't be afraid to speak up because um, don't be fooled by the small quotas. Things always come back around. And it wasn't that long ago that they caught 100,000 tons in the, in the Gulf of Maine. So alone yep. and, and that's just reported and in, in not dumped and so you can you can imagine that number was much bigger and yep. uh the other thing i'll just to, to fully scare your readers is one of the things you learn when you get involved in in herring is um and some of the saners i know had done it um it's, it's called getting scaled so when you tow fast through herring they're they're delicate when you there's many many fish that go out the net that have their scales removed that will die so it's like a herring yeah what makes it so fattening is it's kind of a delicate little thing. And it's not like a pogey, which is just like a bony head with a, a large body behind it. Herring are very fragile in a lot of ways. And so when a lot of the fish go through that net and get scaled, they're going to die and never get counted. So just the numbers are astronomical and it's really the, the impact per given area. It's, it's that, that cluster mentality. And I know scallopers do that, but scallops are not herring. You know, it's the bottom line. It's like, they're different and it, it, it's you you know so like you'll hear scallopers i'm sure say well well if they're going to do that to us well no it's totally different and so that that's one of the things that i always get pissed at stick up for what's right and, and stop defending the bad things just because of the boogeyman because we could all sit there and say that you know it's like we're next yeah. too i guess you know it's no if you, you know if a fishery is impacting your fishery fight it you know yeah, and exactly and, and, but the most fisheries which is nice to see some groups coming around now um that are trying to build unity amongst user groups there's some that don't fit into that mold and, and midwater trawling is one of them so i'll leave it there you can tell it's a hot topic for me um but you know as a group just the, the bluefin collaborative position is we need to get more data on 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 where we fish how we fish so that the next time this comes up when this comes up there isn't anyone saying well how do we know that you guys even fish where they fish because they've got this great data and you don't so yeah no, it's the constant. It's the constant battle, and and like I I I won't bring up an, a whole nother topic, but it's it's hugely important for other ocean um, use wind. When I go to a wind meeting, it's almost like deja vu because they're saying, "Well, where's the data?" And it's like, "Well, I you know you can't bring data back from the past." So yeah. our only hope that, and really, I hope people are listening to this. This is the most important thing: report data, get involved in our projects. Like, do you think this is what I felt like doing? I mean, I love fishing, but this is the last thing I want to have to do is, is, is convince everyone on earth that they need our data, but they do. And if you like fishing and you like the ocean, uh, your only hope is to get more involved in reporting data. So, yeah. um, you know, your group's doing a great job, uh, bluefincollaborative.org. It's like, yeah, reach out let, so org. i know that you have a volunteer website um anything yeah. else you can leave our listeners we're going on an hour 20 here this was a great yeah, no, uh, if you're still here good congrats 
Um, <laughs> and uh, no, I, I, I would just say that um, science can be a pain in the ass because it's, it's, it's hard. It's complicated. It's way over our heads, but sampling is not. And so the things that matter is getting involved in these sampling programs, reporting your data. And if you're going to do it, be careful because just the simple thing like wiping off your scissors when you, let's say you catch two tuna, wipe off the scissors or put them in bleach between fish because that don't go through the effort of doing science and then not take that extra step to do it professionally. And so, yep. you know, as we move along, we're going to have hopefully training and we can probably work together on that, but really get involved and, and, and tell people the truth. It's not like yep. people are law. It's more of the avoidance of, you know, there's a fear, for example, with catch and release, like, will they take a, a discord mortality? It's like, if everyone knew in the government how many fish were caught and released, they would blow their minds at to the levels of fish that are out there. It's just like the Slope Sea. There are people that worry about the Slope Sea because, you know, the Gulf of Mexico had a lot of persecution. The people in the Gulf of Mexico were, were, were pushed pretty hard not to fish. Um, and, and so the thought is, well, if we prove another spawning area, well, does that mean we're not going to be able to fish there. And it's no, because if you show that there's another spawning area, it changes the whole narrative and it, it changes how you manage bluefin from top to bottom. And, and this idea of this tiny little Gulf of Mexico being this, this poor little place, where the only place they spawn, it's not true. And so get involved, help show the truth and, but do it, or do, you know, join, join up with those of us that are trying to do it objectively so that at the end of the day, all of our hard work actually gets accepted and, and, you know, the last thing I'll say is, um, you know, and, and one of our um, top samplers from North Carolina who's deeply involved in, in management and science, you know, the, the point here isn't to be confrontational with NOAA. It's let's build a, you know, we didn't call it the Bluefin Collaborative for nothing. It's not just right. a, really, it's like the only way you're going to have an impact is if those in NOAA that are involved in the assessment see you as, you know, legitimate and, and respectful you can disagree but but do it carefully and, and and yelling at someone and telling them they're an idiot is going to get you nowhere and and so i think that's what the mold we're trying to break is to build and, and i've been very encouraged i can just tell you and I, i'm sure you have too because you mentioned it earlier how much noah wants us all to get involved and so yeah um, i think this is the beginning let's hope we all succeed you know keep doing what you're doing will it's, it's like uh you know you guys are a good group and i look forward to working more with you and yep, likewise. Uh, like I said, if anyone wants to reach out, it's like, you can tell I got more energy than I need on all this. So <laughs> I'm always here to talk. And, and if you want to see more, you know, Instagram, we have an Instagram, uh, it's, it's Bluefin Collaborative, but and then my own is Twofin Bluna. And you want to see what harpooning looks like, but that don't, don't go, uh, follow me just cause I said it there. But if you want to see <laughs> what I meant by harpooning, I have a handful of videos. And, and the other one I would just flag is there's a, an account on Instagram on the West Coast, uh, Air Pilakia, it's A-R-P-I-L-P-I-L-I-K-I-A. If you look it up, you'll see it. And he's a spotter plane because they have their own giant resource out there. And he is the at the forefront of aerial videos and photos. And so, you know, if you want to see what I'm talking about with bluefin abundance, go look on Instagram a little bit, especially um, Carl, who's Air Pilakia. You, know, you can see bunches of that are just the whole horizon. And that's kind of what we have here. And, and I think we need to show science what's going on. And, uh, you know, thanks for having me on here. And yeah, thank uh, you, Chris. Hopefully your, editing, hopefully your editing team can make something out of this that's interesting. Oh, no, let's look at this. This is a one shotter. I think uh, we, we got it right through. So this is great. I'm glad uh, 
you know, our listeners got a peek into ICAT and that international framework and, uh, you know, learned a little bit about the, the immense potential that genetic sampling and specifically yeah, for genetics being, is the, yeah, tuna. Whether, whether you like it or not, that's the future. Get involved now. And, yep. uh, you know, like, like I said, we look forward to working with you all and, and anyone I'm here driving too. after this, after this podcast, I'm driving, uh, 20 miles uh, east on the Cape to drop off a kit right now. So I hope you get some fishing in after this weather passes and, and I'll give you a report on Nova Scotia now that I'm finally getting to go there. So anyways, uh, sounds great. Well, it's been great. I'll talk to you soon. And, you know, thanks to your group for all you're doing. And um, so concludes my first podcast. <laughs> awesome. Well, thanks again. Thanks again, Chris. And we will be in touch. 